Okay, book of Acts chapter 17. We're in the third portion of our series on knowing God, uh, the attributes of God. We, the first week we talked about the fact that God is knowable. All right, that you can comprehend and apprehend truths about God. You can't get your arms around the infinitude of God, uh, the greatness or majesty of God, but you can learn to appreciate small portions of who God is. Okay, small aspects of who God is. And so that was the first thing we said. Deut- uh, Daniel eleven thirty two. those who know their God stand and do great things. If you know him, he will change you. All right, he will infuse you with power and with capacities to do things that you cannot do on your own. Last week, Doug spoke on the truth that God is a self-existent God. He is not dependent on anyone or anything. This week, I want to look at the sufficiency or independence of God. All right, the enoughness of God is, I know that's not a word, but that's just a word that comes to mind, okay? That God is satisfying and he is enough. In this text, Paul's coming to a city called Athens, if you look at Acts 17 and verse 15, it says, the men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and left him with, instru- and left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. So here's the flow. The believers, uh, the apostles had gone to Thessalonica, encountered pressure as they shared the gospel. In two weeks, they were forced out of Thessalonica. They went, then went to a city called Berea and began to share the gospel, began to have impact. People were coming to faith in Christ. Pressure comes again. So what do they do? They say, Paul, you must be the problem here. So they take Paul and they send him to the city of Athens. And he is waiting there in that unique city of the ancient world, probably most regarded as the most prominent city in the ancient world, Paul is waiting there for Silas and Timothy to come and join him. So we pick up the story then in verse 16 of Acts 17. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, one quick insight here is this. This was a city that was polytheistic, had many gods and many representations of God and many shrines to gods. Okay, so when Paul's preaching about Jesus and the resurrection, the word for resurrection is is anastasis. Okay, so the thought was that he was preaching Jesus, a male God, and anastasis, a female God. Okay, so it, it created for them a sense of confusion and Not understanding what? The power of the resurrection. The idea of life after death. They took that to be another God. So what happens? They say, what is this babbler trying to say? He seems to be advocating foreign gods. Drop down then to verse 19. They took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what you mean. 
And verse 21 gives you a summary of Athens. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Okay, so you kind of get the idea of what Athens was like. It was a, a mall, if you will, a shopping center for ideas, for gods. It was full of idols. So let's begin to look through this text, considering some important thoughts. First of all, what is Athens? Okay, Athens is the former cultural center of the Greco-Roman world. Okay, if you see pictures of Greece today, typically at the top of those pictures, or in the, in the foreground of the pictures, you're going to see something called the Acropolis and the Parthenon. The Acropolis is a mountain covered with shrines, and the Parthenon is the one with all the white pillars that is the most famous site in Greece. Okay, that is the city of Athens that Paul went to. Okay, so the Acropolis is the city's ancient citadel where the gods were, the Parthenon being, in it, even in, in its partial ruins, a magnificent site. Okay, and this is where Paul is, in a place of great splendor. It would have been easy for Paul to do what many people do today. They go to Greece, they go to Athens to be tourists. All right, to look at, to be amazed by, to be fascinated by all the various things are there. Why? Because it is a truly fascinating and impressive city of great renown. But as we watch Paul, we see that Paul doesn't respond as a tourist. Okay? And so what I want to do is I want to work our way through this text answering four questions. Okay, the four questions are, what did Paul see? How did he feel? What did he do? And then what did he say? Okay, and some of these thoughts, uh, in terms of those four points, uh, John Stock kind of points that out as a way to lay out this text. Okay, so following that simple model, I want us to work through this text asking the question, first, what did Paul see? Okay, when he got to Athens, verse 16 tells us that he was distressed to see that the city was full of, of idols. It was, some of the translations are going to say it was a city that was given over to idols. It was devoted to and dedicated to idols. One ancient writer called it a veritable forest of idols. It was smothered with and under them. Everywhere you went, you saw idols. One writer said in the ancient world that it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. Okay, so you have a, 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 a place that is submerged under innumerable idols, temples, shrines, altars, all demanding something from humanity. Not giving, not able to meet needs, but all demanding, all taking. And the question I want to ask you is this. As Paul walked through and saw what he saw, okay, when he looked at it, did he see it as a tourist? Was he just fascinated by all the things? Look at these amazing statues of marble and gold and bronze and wood. and Was he amazed by those things? Was he captivated by it as the tourist sees? Now, I think what you'll find is if you look at verse 16, verse 22, and verse 23, three times it uses a word to talk about how Paul saw. There are many words in the Greek language that could describe just simply the act of seeing. But the word that's used here is theoreo. We get our word theorize. To look beneath, to look at the foundation, to look at the motivation behind what one is looking at. And as Paul looked at this city, how did he see? Okay, Paul saw 
what lay beneath the idolatry. And he knew in his own heart what an idol was. It was a man-made substitute or replacement for God. It was anything, any desire, any person, any longing, any want that took the place of God in an individual's life. It is where we turn when we think that our God is inadequate and insufficient. And so what happened in Athens? There were many, many different kinds of gods. Here's the problem with idols, okay? The problem with idols is that no thing, no person, no desire, no longing, no craving, no knowledge can take the place of God. So idols are what? Idols are false hopes. And in Athens, what were people doing? People were doing what many people do in America. They run after this and they run after that. This pleasure, this desire, this want, this material possession, this purchase. Why are we so frenzied? Why are we so dissatisfied? Because we're looking for satisfaction in the wrong place. And as Paul went through the city, what did he see? He saw a city that was full of hope. But all of the hopes in that city were false because they were inadequate substitutes for the true and living God. There where we turn when we think that the living God is inadequate and insufficient. So what did Paul see? He saw a city full of false hopes, a city full of idols. What did he feel? Okay, verse 16 says, Paul was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The idea of this word is something, it's not, it's not simply anger, okay? It's not that he, he kind of flew into a rage and began to just kind of flame out and speak. It's, it's not that kind of a word. The word has the idea of being saddened by the sight of a city given over to false hopes, to lies. It broke his heart because it, it, it eclipsed the true hope, okay? All of the idols All the false hopes blocked the true hope from coming into sight. And so as Paul looked at that, it it, it affected him deeply. He was agitated. He was irritated. Why? Because Paul had tasted of the true God. He had a personal relationship with the living God. And so what did he know? He knew that no substitute could ever bring the satisfaction that God could bring. Why? Because he served a God who was sufficient and who was unique. And that's the direction this text is going to move in. To point out why Paul felt this agitation, this jealousy for the glory of God. Now, when we think of jealousy, what do we usually think of? We usually think of an emotion that's negative. Okay? We're upset that someone looks better than us. We're upset that someone has more than us. We're upset by the, the pleasures and desires that someone else is experiencing that we're not experiencing. We're, we're, we're jealous of their circumstances in life. And so often we think of jealousy as a negative emotion. But I believe in this text what it's saying is Paul was jealous for the glory of God. Paul wanted people to know that when they knew God, they would find what they were looking for. And so as he looked at people bowing down and giving offerings to false gods and false temples and false idols, what did he feel? In his heart, he felt a desire for them to know God, the true and living God, instead of these false gods and these false hopes that were driving their lives. So the the emotion that he's feeling is, is not the jealousy against someone who has something that we want. Instead, it is the jealousy that would be present in a marriage. 
In a marriage, a husband and wife are jealous for one another. They love one another. They value and experience an exclusive relationship with each other. And what does Paul want people to know? Paul wants them to know that only God can truly satisfy. So in the context of a marital jealousy, what is it? It is an understanding that the intruder into the relationship does not have a right to be there. Okay, and this is when Paul looks at at idols moving into the lives of people. What does he know? He knows the idols can't satisfy. They're intruders. What does he want to do? He wants to introduce the living and true God. So in his heart, he feels jealousy because he knows that God has the right to exclusive exclusive allegiance. What is he saying? He's watching people going in all different directions, lives splintered by the pain of pursuing false hopes. In Isaiah 42 and verse 8, here's what God says. I am the Lord. That is my name. I will not give my glory to another or my praise to idols. Why? Why wouldn't God share his position? Because no one else can satisfy. No other God could possibly meet your needs like God can. And that's what, as Paul goes through the city, what is he experiencing? He's experiencing grief and sadness and brokenness. Why? Because people are trying to find hope in a false place. And as he watched that, it began to break his heart. See what Paul saw. Feel what Paul felt. Secondly, what or third, what did Paul do? Verse 17 is fascinating. It says that Paul reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks. And you'll find between verse 16 and verse 17, there's a transitional word. In light of what he saw... He reasoned with them. Here's to me is what's fascinating. He didn't, he didn't kind of lose it in anger. No, he went in and had a rational discussion with them about the true and living God. Now, I am sure that as Paul reasoned with them, there was a certainty, there was a conviction, there was a depth, a strong foundation that he was encouraging upon them. But he reasoned with them. Verse 18, it says this. It says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So what is Paul doing in the city? Okay, and this is a word that in our culture is not very popular. It's uh, an action that Christians are reluctant to take because we know how it will be perceived in our world. He was evangelizing. Okay, and the word in the Greek here is euangelizmai. He was being evangelistic in his relationship to the city. That's what Paul did. So how did he do it? He went to the synagogue, which was the place of religious establishments. He went and talked with the philosophers, the Stoics, and the Epicureans. And if I was just going to give you a summary of what they're like, the Stoics were basically vague in terms of spirituality, unmoved by circumstance, and the goal was to be self-sufficient. And the idea was to be independent of circumstances. Okay, that was their goal. The Epicureans, on the other hand, thought that God was distant and uninterested in their lives. So the result of that belief that God was distant and uninterested is that they poured themselves into seeking pleasure, satisfaction. Okay, finding Hope in life through temporal possessions and through temporal pleasures and living. Why? Because death for the Greeks was the end. Okay, they did not believe in a resurrection, in an afterlife, so they poured themselves into these kinds of life. Self-sufficiency for the Stoics, 
the pursuit of pleasure for the Epicureans because you only go around once. So either you stand strong, self-sufficient, or you go for all the pleasure you can get out of life. Those were the, the philosophies that laid beneath the city of Athens. Now, the other thing that Paul did, the Bible tells us, is that he went into the marketplace. You see this in verse 17. He went to the synagogues where the God-believing people were to share with them the fullness of his revelation. But he also went into the marketplace, and here's what the text says. He did this day by day. Okay, now, when we think of the marketplace, sometimes people today try to equate it with a shopping mall. Okay, but the marketplace in Athens was much more than that. It was the center of life. It was the hub of life. It was the place where people spent their time pursuing commerce, art, media, business, politics, finance, education. The court system was there. It was, a, it was a virtual shopping mall of ideas. It's where life was lived. Okay, and, and in that place, what happened? It was full of idols. Okay, but where did Paul go? When Paul got to Athens and saw the struggle, that was right, he went to the heart of the community. Which, and, and what did he do there? When he got there, he evangelized. So, I don't know if you remember years ago going to uh, Walmart, Kmart shopping, okay? I used to go to Kmart a good bit before Walmart came around, okay? And Kmart had this fascinating experience called the Blue Light Special. You remember that? Okay, so, so what happened? You're in the store, and they would say, all of a sudden you hear this, attention shoppers. Okay, and that was to say... you. All the stuff you're looking at is about to become dissatisfying because we're not going to make you an offer for something that is a blue light special that will really meet your needs. Okay, so it's almost like Paul is where? He's in the Kmart of the ancient world, philosophically, spiritually, where people are what? They're looking for reason. They're looking for hope. They're looking for sufficiency. But they're looking for it personally. And what does Paul do? It's almost like Paul stands up and he says, attention shoppers. Listen, I've come to bring you a message. I've looked at your store and I found it wanting. It's, 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 it's resources, it's it skews, it's stop keeping units. They can't satisfy. He'd gone around and examined. Because here's what you find amongst the, the, amongst the Acropolis is what? It's, there, there are all kinds of gods to all kinds of things. Why? Because all of the gods of ancient Greece were limited in terms of their adequacy, in terms of their sufficiency, in terms of what they could provide. And so Paul stands up and he says, I want to make known to you the gospel of God, that there is hope in Jesus. Now what's the problem with that? We live in a world that looks down on evangelizing, don't we? Most people use the word proselytizing. Okay, we don't live in a world that looks favorably towards people that share their faith. And the Apostle Paul is speaking in a world that was very pluralistic. Okay, it was a world that was full of idols and full of ideologies and ways to view life and ways to find pleasure. It was full. And what did Paul say? No, no, no. Attention shoppers, only God can truly satisfy. Only He can meet your needs. He is what you are ultimately looking for or shopping for. Because we live in a world that looks down on evangelism and because Paul lived in a world that looked down on evangelism, what do most Christians tend to do? Because we know that people won't appreciate us sharing our faith, what do we tend to do with our faith? What do we do? Keep it to ourselves. We privatize our faith. 
Stuff in an envelope, stick it in a picture. I have the hope of heaven. And I don't really care about other people. Because if I care about them and being able to express my convictions about Jesus and about God and about a relationship with him, they're going to think I'm weird. I don't want them to think I'm weird. So I'm not going to preach Jesus and the resurrection. I'm just going to be there. Okay, Paul could not, in light of how he saw, he wasn't there as a tourist. He saw the city for what it really was, a false hope. So what did he do? First, he felt deeply and personally pain, anguish, sorrow. Why? They didn't know God. And then what does he do? He begins to speak the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why does Paul speak? Ask yourself this question. Why? Ask yourself this question. Why is it that I'm silent about the gospel? Why don't I feel what Paul felt? Why don't I see like Paul saw? Why? I think the issue is ultimately one of motive. See, well, what do we want to do? We want to have the how-to course and not deal with the motivation. You could say that Paul shared the gospel because he was an apostle of Christ. Simple obedience. You could also say that Paul shared the gospel because when he looked at a city full of idols, it provoked him. It internally broke his heart. Folks, do you ever experience this? You see someone caught in the chains of sin, addicted, restricted, confined. Look around. What do you feel? You feel broke? That's what Paul felt. They were hanged. People were, were, were chained to or tied to things, pursuits, pleasures, that couldn't satisfy. And as he looked, what happened? It broke his heart. And so he felt compassion and he moved. That's what happened to Jesus, right? When he saw the multitudes, he was filled with compassion. Why? They were sheep without a shepherd. They were wandering around the marketplace trying to find a reason to live. I think the reason Paul shared the gospel of Christ is because he was jealous for the glory of God. Not just obedience, not simply moved by compassion, but he wanted people to know who were... And we do this with all kinds of things, don't we? We do this with ice cream places. We do this with restaurants. We do this with cars, contract, all kinds of... We do this. We find something that's really good. Our doctor's the best. Right? Somebody comes to you, oh, I, I, mean, I tell people all the time, my daughter had a back operation 11 years ago. Dr. Thomas Errico at New York University Hospital. You know who the best surgeon in the world is? Dr. Tom Errico. Okay, so you ask me about backs... My daughter's doing pretty good. So you know what I say? I say, you know what? Oh, don't go to that doctor. Don't go to... No, no, no. They're, they're not. What, what am I? I'm jealous for Dr. Thomas Errico in this sense that I believe that if you have a back problem, you need to go see him. Don't go see anybody else. We do this with all kinds of things in life, don't we? What is Paul saying? He's saying, I, I have found... By the grace of God, a personal relationship with a God who cannot be represented by all the things that you're pursuing here. He will truly satisfy you. I am jealous for him. And folks, listen. If your love for God and your desire to make him known and to see him glorified does not cause you to evangelize and share your faith, nothing will. Because you will be, you will be silenced by shame. Obedience, just I got to do it. Won't, it won't change you. It won't, it won't motivate your heart. Compassion. Yeah, you'll feel bad that people don't know Jesus, but that won't. You know what will change you? When you understand that God alone satisfies. And then in a world of false hopes, what, is, what did Paul do? He opened his mouth about God. Why did he do that? 
Follow along in verse 22. You're going to find something that happens here, okay? And you're going to find why Paul couldn't be apathetic, okay? Verse 19, after Paul's kind of gone through this argument, the text says this. It says, it says without my glasses, there we go. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus. Okay, so he's out in the marketplace, he's talking, he's sharing all his thoughts, and all of a sudden they, they take him, and the idea isn't necessarily hostile, but it is necessary. Okay, and you have to differentiate here. They take Paul to the Areopagus. What is the Areopagus? Some of the, I think your King James Version may say they took him to Mars Hill. Okay, what was it? it? It was the center of thinking. It was where the thought police lived. And if you wanted to introduce a new God in Athens, where did you have to go? You had to go to the Areopagus. You had to go to the place where there were people qualified to render a verdict on the God that you were presenting. Now, how did the Epicureans and Stoics feel about Paul? What does the text say? I think it's in verse 18. It says, what is this babbler trying to say? Okay, the idea of babbler is they, they, they took him as kind of a seed picker, somebody who picked up scraps of thoughts, plagiarized them, and then shared them as his own. Okay, and so he was just interested in speaking. He picked this up somewhere, something about this Jesus and the resurrection, and he, he's come here into Athens, and we know it's impossible because the Greeks don't believe in the resurrection. So Paul, he's speaking something that's it's odd. And in a sense, what they were saying is Paul's kind of a fringe thinker. He's not really worthy of our respect. And a hearing. But they also thought that he may be dangerous. And so they take him to the Areopagus. To present his faith. It was a council that had jurisdiction. They were the thought police of Paul's day. Okay. Not a formal trial. But a necessary trial. And so they put Paul in the midst of that situation. And we pick up. In verse 22. As they say to Paul, we want to hear what you have to say. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, that was at the center of it, and said, Men of Athens, I see that you are in every way very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. Now, what you worship as unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Okay, so this leads us to the fourth question. What did Paul say? When he got in front of the Areopagus, when he got into the place of prominence in terms of the thinking of the ancient world, in this informal inquiry, what does Paul say? And I love how Paul introduces this. There's a sense of respect in his greeting. Men of Athens... You don't get any sense that Paul's like flaming mad. What is he doing? He's going to have a rational discussion with them about the validity and supremacy of the true and living God. Verse 22, he also compliments them, doesn't he? He says, I see that you are very religious. You, you are, you're God seekers. Okay, you, you want to know about him, but in the midst of your idols, I saw, I saw a shrine with the inscription to the unknown God. Which is an admission what? That what the people of Athens had found in their idolatry, in their pursuit of life, had not yet satisfied. 
Okay, that's the admission. And Paul picks up on that. He says, that God that you worship in ignorance, that you, you pay homage to him, but you do not know him. You don't know what he expects. You don't know what he's like. That is the God that I'm going to declare to you. And what is Paul doing in that? What is Paul doing? Paul's drawing a line in the sand. He's saying there are all these other gods, and then there is God. A God who is independent and sufficient. And that's the God that now Paul takes up to speak to them. You admit your ignorance, Paul says, I bring to you the truth. The truth about Jesus and the resurrection. So then he begins to delineate characteristics of God. And let's just work through these real quickly. First of all, he says this about God in this portrait of the unique and self-sufficient God. He says, God is the creator and ruler of all. Okay, and this sets the God of Paul, the living God, apart from all other gods. Because if you were to walk through the Acropolis in Greece, what you would have found in Paul's day was shrines to gods. Every god had a sphere of domain. No god had full sovereignty. Okay? No god had full and absolute sovereignty. Athena was the god of wisdom. Zeus was the god of the sky. Poseidon was the god of the sea. Aphrodite was the goddess of pleasure. And you could go on and on and on. And what did you find? That all of the gods sounded strangely like people. They were limited. They, 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 they couldn't multitask. Okay, they, they had limited capacities and limited spheres of influence. And Paul's saying, that is not the true and living God. You had, you had, a, 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 you had a, an Acropolis full of gods who competed with one another, who fought with each other. And as you look through Greek mythology, what you find is the gods look just like people. Why? Because they were made in the image of humanity. And what is Paul doing? It broke his heart. Why? Because there is a living God, a creator God who is above all these things. So the first thing that Paul wants to say in verse 24 is that the God who made the world and everything in it is Lord of heaven and earth. He does not live in temples built by hands. That is a devastating statement. Okay, what did they have? They had all kinds of shrines, all kinds of temples, all kinds of gods. And Paul comes on the scene and says, the living God does not live in those places. In fact, he is the creator. And as a result of creating all, he is also the ruler of all. Creators and owners have exclusive rights to what they own and to what they make. And only God can look at the world and say, it's mine. Only he can control it because he alone created it. And then Paul drifts into this one other observation. This God who we serve is uncontainable. Which is to say what? He can't be domesticated. He can't be tamed. You can't get him to do the things that you want him to do. Why? He is the God who is. So in Athens, they would typically bring people into the Areopagus, set them before the council, and they would argue for a place to put their God. They would tell about the characteristics of their God. And what is Paul saying? That procedure is unnecessary in relationship to the living God. He can't be contained. He can't be housed. He's over all of this. He's unique as the creator. And he is, in fact, gloriously sufficient. Solomon said this after he built the tabernacle or the temple in the Old Testament, 1 Kings 8. He said, but will God really dwell on earth? 
And then what does he say? He says the heavens of heavens can't contain you. God is uncontainable. He exists outside of the universe that we live in because he made the universe that we live in. He is the creator. In the beginning, God. Revelation 4.11, as a result of that, he is worthy to receive glory and honor and power and blessing. Why? He made all things. And so he is a God who creates the world. And that fact that he created the world brings to you and I a, a, a moral responsibility. So as Paul talks about the creation, he talks about our responsibility to the living God. This is where Paul starts with the gospel, folks. He starts with the understanding that God made us, or God made the world, and he made us rulers over the world, but where? Under him. We answer to him. He is the creator and controller of all things. Second thought that then Paul brings, verse 25. This God that we serve has no needs. Verse 25. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. Do you see what Paul's doing? He's taking a shot at the philosophies that were prevalent in Athens. God created the world and cares for the world. He gives you life and breath and everything. He is not a God that is distant. So the goal of life can't be, as the Stoics said, or as the Epicureans said, self-sufficiency. Okay, why? We're to pursue a God-sufficiency. He made you. He gives you life and breath and everything. Now, one of the things I've noticed when I have taken trips into India and Indonesia is this. You'll find shrines all over the place. And at the foot of all the shrines, what do you find? You find meals. Okay, in front of stone statues, what do you, you find meals. Do they ever get eaten? No. Why? The God can't move off the dime. So, so what is Paul saying? The God of the Bible, the creator God, he's not served by human hands. He doesn't need us to give to him. We need to receive from him. What do we receive from him? Life and breath. And Paul then stretches. He says everything comes from him. He has no needs. In fact, he instead provides our needs in a personal way. Out of his infinite riches in Jesus, the song says, he giveth and giveth and giveth again. So we don't have to build a shrine and then go there and give him certain things. The, the tabernacle and temple in the Old Testament had a purpose. It had the purpose of showing the holiness and glory of God. It was not a place to house God. Solomon understood that. The heavens of heavens cannot contain you. Much less this temple that I have built. Why? He is a God who has no needs for such things. A.W. Tozer said this. He said, need is a creature word. And God has never said, I need, I want, I would like, I wish I had. Where did I put? God has never said those things. What are they? They're all part of our experience as limited, insufficient, and inadequate creatures who need the help of God. He is a God who doesn't experience needs. Folks, listen. Every time I thirst, every time I hunger, every time I'm tired, what am I doing? I am manifesting my need for help, my dependence. Those thoughts never run through the mind of God. Those experiences are never the experiences of the God who created the world and everything in it. He is too great to be housed in man-made temples, but he is not too great to be concerned about our daily needs. And when we trust him, what are we saying? You are sufficient. 
When we trust Him, we're saying, you are enough. When we flee from idols, those false representations, those false hopes, what are we saying? I love God. Pursuing God satisfies and brings joys into my life. Verses 26 through 28. Paul bears down a bit. It's a little bit complex, but I think we're going to try to summarize it in a simple way. Here's what he says. From one man, he, God, made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live which is to say what god created one man adam and out of adam and eve came all of humanity now what did the greeks think the greeks thought that they were special that they were a unique super race that they had a unique position in 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 the world above other people what is paul doing he's dropping them down a notch and saying that God made all of us unique and he created us for fellowship with him. Okay, see the gods of the ancient world were distant, right? That's what, that's what, that's what some of the philosophers said. God is disinterested. He's, he's far away. What is Paul saying? The God who made you, made you as, uses these words, as his offspring. The idea is he created you in his image to enjoy and experience a personal relationship with him. And not until you experience that personal relationship with him will you be at peace. Will you have true hope? So what does the world do? The world does this and you and I tend to do this. We tend, when we're, when we're, when we're not pressing in with God and loving God and being satisfied with God, we start being attracted to other things. We try to find satisfaction in false hopes. The Apostle Paul is saying that God made you unique for fellowship with Him. He created you in His image, which is to say, as His offspring, He created you to relate to Him. Like a, like a mom and dad relate to their child. Why? Because your relationship with that child is unique. They are your offspring. They came from you. They bear your qualities. They bear your emotions. And so you relate to them in this special kind of way. What Paul is arguing for these people is this. The God who created you wants to know you. He desires a personal relationship with you. Verse 27 says, God created us in this way so that, and this is key, because to to understand the nature of humanity, you have to ask yourself, where does this longing for something greater, where does this longing for a, a relationship with the creator come from? Well, God created you to walk with you. Go back to the book of Genesis. God created man, and he would come and walk with Adam and Eve in the cold of the day. He created them for relationship. What broke that relationship? Self-sufficiency. What broke that relationship was the idea that I can find something else in life that will bring me satisfaction, something apart from God. And that was the lie that Satan sold to Adam and Eve. And that lie broke the fellowship and the relationship that man and God had. Adam enjoyed God, obeyed God, walked with God, fellowship with God. Sin broke that fellowship and led to dissatisfaction in Adam's life and when God came in the cool of the day did Adam want to come near as an image bearer no you know what he did he went away from God God created you for a unique relationship with him and until you have that relationship with him you will not be satisfied in your life why did you he, he did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though Paul says he is not very far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. Meaning God fills the entire world that he has created. He is that imminent. He is that 
sufficient. As a kid, I remember playing a game and probably done this somewhat recently at some youth events. Remember in the swimming pool, you would play a game, Marco Polo, right? So the person who's above the water says Marco and everybody else has to respond, Polo. And after you identify where you are, what do you do? You submerge and hide. You make yourself hard to find. What does God do? God creates a universal world. He puts his fingerprints all over it so that we would what? Long after him and see. We, we would look at all these things. We would experience awe and wonder as we look at creation. And what would we do? We'd say, I want to know him. I'm amazed by him. I'm awed by him. He did this so that we would seek him. And then what does Paul say? He's not far away. What keeps us from God? Idols. False hopes keep us from the living hope. Addictions and all the things that enslave and tie us down and, and, and offer hope but never give it. So we always have to have a little more of them, right? And Paul's saying God created you in his image so that you would seek after him, the true and living God, and know him and relate to him. Sin breaks that relationship. God comes near in Jesus to restore that relationship. The unknown God is an admission on the part of the people of Athens that they are not satisfied. And that what they really need is, is somebody to come and evangelize them. Somebody to come and to expose them to the truth of the gospel. And as they hear it, what happens? This is kind of fascinating. What happens? You find that they have a variety of responses to the message of the all-sufficient God and His all-sufficient grace. As Paul concludes in, in verse 29, what does he say? He says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, and, and with the assumption, you're created in His image for a relationship with Him. Since you are His offspring, you should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone or an image made by man's design and skill. You can't dream up God. God is. And in being, He is independent. And He is totally sufficient. You can't add to Him. You can't contain Him. But you can know Him. I just love the way this is stated. He's not very far away. Come to him. Know him. Seek him. And if you know him, share him with other people. Idols are false hopes. Jesus is the true hope. In verse 30, Paul then draws this to a conclusion in a way that is strong. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. That is, unknown God. But now... He commands all men everywhere to repent. That is to have a change of mind about who God is and to come and know him and find hope in Jesus. Verse 31, he tightens this up. He says, he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this, this future judgment and of this unique man by raising him from the dead. What is Paul saying? A day of judgment is coming. A window of opportunity to repent is present. What is to repent? To repent is to realize that I have been serving false gods. I have been pursuing false pleasures. They haven't satisfied. I need to say, God, I have tried to replace you and I have been unsuccessful. I acknowledge my sin in all of those things and not giving you the glory that you deserve. I turn from my idolatry, from my selfish pursuits and pleasures. And I turn to you. 
You know, in the book of Genesis, after Adam and Eve sinned, what happened? God came near seeking them. In the New Testament, what has God done? God has come near in the person of Jesus Christ. And what is, what is he doing? He is seeking with you a personal, life-changing relationship. And Paul says, that's what I'm telling you. That unknown God, the one that you can't describe, that you can't contain, that you don't understand, the one that you are ignorant of, you don't know, that's the one that I am proclaiming, declaring, gospelizing to you. And he, God, has set a day when Jesus Christ will judge the world. Jesus, Paul is saying, makes full forgiveness possible. Why? Because when you talk about the resurrection, there's a presumption that you've talked about the work of Christ on the cross where he pays for your sin. Well, how do you know he's the real savior of the world? And what does Paul say? God raised him from the dead. Which is a mind-blowing truth for who? For all of the Greek philosophers. Why? They didn't believe in resurrection and they didn't believe in judgment. So what do they do? Live life to its fullest. Get everything out of it you can because it's all there is. The Apostle Paul comes and declares the true and living God in whom we live and move and have our being. And he proclaims to the Greeks that have no hope in death that Jesus has conquered death and in that sense is a unique and sufficient Savior. Folks, understand this. The coming of Jesus, God in flesh, and the resurrection set biblical Christianity apart from all world religions. In the most unique way, those simple truths that God became a man, stood in your place in the person of his son, Jesus Christ, bore the wrath that you deserve, died the death that you should have died, on the third day was raised to life by the all-sufficient power of God. Right? That is the message that makes biblical Christianity unique. It separates it from all world religions. What does it say? It says, in a world of idols, false hopes, Paul proclaimed the sufficiency of God and the hope that is found in Jesus. Folks, that's what we should do. So the question then is this, isn't it? Do I feel what Paul felt as a result of seeing like he saw? Do you look at the pursuits? Do you look at the things that people go after and realize they're trying to find something in, in, in this or that pursuit that can't satisfy? I know the truth. What do I do? I go and proclaim the true hope of God. In a world that's looking in all different places and all different things to find a reason, to find hope. Paul steps onto the scene and he says, you know what? Hope is found in Jesus. Hope is found in the living God who is the creator of the world. And, and, and the outcome of this story in verses 32 to 34, is that some, there's a variety of responses. Some mock Paul. When they hear the, the idea of the resurrection, what do they do? They sneer. Why? They don't know a God who can do that. That's unthinkable to them. Some ponder and postpone a decision. They, they, you know what? I need to think more about that. And, and if you're here this morning and that's where you are, you say, you know what? I need to think more about the truth of who Jesus Christ is, the uniqueness of the biblical story of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, of God in flesh. I need to think about that. But the text goes on to say that some joined Paul. Think about this. He's a battler. Okay? He's going on about Jesus and the resurrection. It's, it's just new ideas. He's fringe. What happened? As Paul began to proclaim the truth of the living God, all-sufficient God, in the place of false hopes, what happened? Some came to know Christ and were converted and were changed by the power of the gospel. They became, verse 34, followers. One of them, and I love this, one of them was a member of the Areopagus. 
one that was set there to judge is overwhelmed by the power of the truth of God and the gospel. And what happens? He, he, he places faith in Jesus and the resurrection. And what Jesus has done on the cross for him, his life has changed. He walks out of there no longer an idol worshiper, but a man who is converted by the gospel of God. How about you? A day is appointed for all of us. A day when we will stand before God and give an account of ourselves. Do you have hope for that day? Do you know Jesus personally? And Christian friend this morning, here, here's the thought I want to leave you with. When Paul talked about sharing his faith in an all-sufficient God who could destroy the power of idols and bring hope where hope was fading. When Paul looked at that task, you know what he said? He said, 2 Corinthians 3, he said, we are not sufficient for these things. Can't do this. Our sufficiency comes from God. How, how, I can't change someone's heart. I am fully aware of that. I, I know the gospel can change people's hearts. I've watched the gospel change people's hearts. You know what Paul wants us to do? He wants us to looking at this text to see what he did, to feel what he felt. Go and do what he did. Say what he said about God. Preach the truth of Christ. Let people know that there is hope. There is a Savior. There is one who is coming to judge. You need to turn from your sin and trust Him. And when you do, He will destroy your idols and will exalt Himself in your life as the living God, the hope of the nations, who is sufficient, who is independent. And out of that sufficiency, He giveth and giveth and giveth again. He wants to change your life. He aims to sustain you. And to uphold you. He is not far away. He has come near. To enjoy a relationship with you. If you know him. Rejoice in that. If you don't know him. Today I would encourage you. Turn from what you're serving. To the living and true God. Know him through the son of God. Jesus Christ. Our savior. Let's pray. Father.